I have obviously been in contact with our friends from Texas, particularly by phone since they arrived in this country, which was actually, they're only just here for just over a week, so it's a lot. They've been in Edinburgh, they're based in Edinburgh, they've been in Dundee, they did concerts in Edinburgh, Dundee, somewhere else, and they're coming here. And as I hinted at, the arrangements have not, but they did all the arrangements through a travel agent, and it hasn't always worked out. I think they've had transport problems elsewhere. So I've spoken to Alex, who's the, the leader, the, the bandmaster, I suppose, might be the phrase, I don't know what they call him um, there, but he's been the leader of the group, and we chatted away and I was saying to him that it was unfortunately he was arriving in Scotland and despite all that's happening weather-wise down south well we've had the clouds and we've also had some rain although it is quite mild but nothing compared of course to the temperatures that they're going to be getting down south and he was telling us they were pleased about that it was a nice change because when they left home it was on average on average 101 when they flew from Dallas airport it was 101 and there had been power outages because people are on the central heat, or not the central heating, the air conditioning, just shows I'm from Scotland, <laughs> the air conditioning, and, and it's overloading the system. And we got into quite a bit of a chat about that, about the struggle that the infrastructure they have within the United States, I hope. I'm not criticizing it too much. Evan will put me right later. But the infrastructure there, the public electricity supply, the, the water supply, the roads, the rail system, other systems are struggling and needing major, major investment. I think President Biden was trying to put through Congress a very large, we're talking about billions of pounds or dollars worth of expenditure on the infrastructure because it's outdated especially probably after the war in the 50s and into the 60s, perhaps into the early 70s, but there's been not a lot of money spent on it since. And with all the demands of technology, with all the demands of a warming climate, with things like air conditioning and everything else, it just can't cope. The growth in population, the demand for water, all of these things are putting great pressure on the infrastructure within that country. And to be honest, and we know this here, that's also true in this country. You just need to stay, see the state of our roads. We have lampposts in Douglas Gardens, I don't think have been painted since the 1970s. Our pavements haven't been redone since the 1950s. They're actually, the last time they were retired was when they replaced the gas pipes for the gas lighting. And when they came to do the road, they did do the road a few years ago, and I said, what about the pavements, the state they're in? And he just looked at me and says, you've got a chance. <laughs> but they hadn't been done since, as I say, after the war, which is a long time ago. And we know from other ways in which even technology, I don't know about you, but BT's been struggling, OpenReach has been struggling, and where we are, there's been quite a few come collapses of the internet over these past weeks for a whole host of reasons, no doubt. But nonetheless, the system is struggling. And of course, without that infrastructure, without the things we can't really see, the, the cables that bring the power or supply the water or, or these types of things, without that, then life as we know it and life as we enjoy it with all the comforts and the benefits, as I say, of central heating or air conditioning, or whatever, will soon stop. And I remember not that long ago reading an article which of course says that in any future conflict, 
um, one of the first things that an enemy would do would be to make sure that the infrastructure stopped working because it depends so much nowadays on computer technology to keep it going. And very quickly, water, gas, electricity, the means of communication would easily be stopped. And the suggestion is that that happened, that we, unlike many other parts of the world, of course, which don't have these benefits, we just wouldn't cope. I do remember another group being here, um, not an American group, a, a group from Scotland being here a few years ago for a concert. And, oh, I got what for from one of the ladies because we didn't have plugs and suitable mirrors in the bathrooms for our tongs to do our hair. Well, the infrastructure, literally, physically, but also morally and spiritually of Israel was collapsing. If you want, when you go home, you can read the chapter just prior to this. Indeed, you can read through the book of Kings. It is, after all, a history of, it is a record of history. But one of the phrases which continually comes up when it's talking about the kings, particularly of this northern kingdom based in Samaria, the kingdom of Israel as it's called, is that Omri, who was the father of Ahab, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. 1 Kings 16 and verse 25. And then in verse 29 we read, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to worship Baal, and wor began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah post, kind of, kind of totem pole type thing, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hale of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. That's just a very brief background to the setting for Elijah. A series of kings, a series of leaders had departed from the Lord. That's because, of course, originally when there was the rebellion and the division of Israel, of the nation state of Israel, that was at the very heart of that rebellion. Will you serve God or will we be like the nations round about and, and fit in and accommodate to their ways? And particularly as we read here to the worship of Baal, a fertility god, a Canaanite god, or the Sherapol, which again was a god of fertility and was, I say, was kind of like a big totem pole, we would maybe say. And, and, and people would gather around that and, and can I say just a wee bit, the maypole that's used for dance, all the rest of it, which seems quite innocent, it's actually derived from that kind of concept. That's why a lot of Christians down south, for instance, aren't very keen on that type of dancing and all the rest of it, because that's part of what was involved. Various frantic, frenzied dancing and doing various things to yourself in order to conjure up the power 
of a God or of a spirit. And that was Israel's story. You know well enough we have spent many years over time looking at the story of Israel. And that was constantly their challenge. Would they serve God or would they go the way of the nations round about? The pagan nations that weren't unspiritual but worshipped the gods that came from nature. Paul in the first, the first chapter of the book of Romans. That is his critique of humanity. That instead of worshipping the creator, we worship the created things that God made. And before we go any further this morning, although that was very much a reality within the time of First Kings, and last year we spent time looking at Ezekiel and his insight as to what went on in Israel, it would be wrong for us to simply say, well, let's be honest, there's no Baal temples in Uddingston or no poles that people dance around here. But of course, that's not the point. The point is that people, when they stop worshipping the Creator, it's not that they stop worshipping something. We can't do that. It's in our DNA. It's how we're made. We have a need to. It's intrinsic to our very being that we give our loyalty, our love, and look for our devotion and security in something or in someone. And while that thing or one in itself might not be wrong, it might be a relationship, it might be a person, it might be a work or career, or it might be something more blatantly wrong, we might look for it in, in feeding our pride or our jealousy or, or dealing with people in a bad way, or it might be on drugs or sex or alcohol or whatever. Obviously, it ranges in people's temperament and personality, but nonetheless, we're made to worship something. And so when Israel, the northern kingdom, began to dabble in these pagan gods, very quickly they became the main heart of the faith of that nation. And it spiritually and morally undermine the nation and later on there's prophets prophet Amos and other prophets later on in the Old Testament who also speak about how it corroded the sense of justice the legal system was corrupted the fairness that the way people were treated well, it was no longer a fair society it became a divided society and those who had got more and those who didn't got even less and there's a whole host of social and economic and practical ramifications that flowed from their loss of loyalty to their creator God and you know my friends if there's nothing else that we remember about the story of Elijah that's a point we need to remember which applies to today and the state of our own nation and the state of the West in general. And the corrosive impact we've seen amongst our leaders, but we also see within our society the corrosive impact on truth and integrity and honesty and justice and stability and the sense of community and oneness and all the things which are good and right and true. And we see these things being corroded and we see people becoming increasingly frustrated and wearied by it, it does ultimately all flow from the fact that as a society, we might not be Israel, but as a society, we've lost sight of and in touch with the living God. And into that environment here, 
we see Elijah appears. And interesting enough, and, and one of the commentators says this, you know, in other parts of the story, in other parts of the kings and whatever else, you can, you can read, you know, the, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to go and speak to King Ahab and, and everything else. Here, there's no introduction. Elijah appears and brings God's word. It's almost a bit like you know, John in his prologue, speak, prologue speaking about Jesus. And, and in a sense, John in that opening chapter in John's gospel, the word becoming flesh, the word that is eternal, the word was, that is, and forever shall be. But the word takes flesh and comes among us. God breaks into time and space and into circumstances, into lives. Well, this is what happens here. Elijah just appears. In the same way that for those who were undiscerning, Jesus just appeared after 300 years and more of silence from God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. God breaks in and brings a word. And look what the word says. It says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, I think maybe the past generation, especially within our own culture, could have read that and thought, well, so be it. But we're particularly aware nowadays, with climate change, with all the things that are happening in our world, just how serious that is. I was listening to a program yesterday on the radio, and it was talking about the great decline in the production of wheat because of the war in the Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere, but also because of drought. And it was speaking about a farmer in France with vast wheat fields that are just singed and burnt because of the climate, because of the weather. Not just now, but the way it's been so variable over these last few months. My friends, we are living in critical times. I think I've mentioned before, the book of Revelation talks about a day's wages being needed to buy a, life, a loaf of bread. Well, my friends, for some people, for many people, in our world, that will be, if it's not already, a reality. And so the lack of rain, or the rain at the wrong time, is disastrous. And here particularly, because Baal was a god of fertility, who was supposed to be sovereign over the rain, and over the climate, and over the growth of the crops, and everything else, to say that you might think he's boss, but actually the God I serve, and notice he says that, the God I serve is boss, and he's switching off the top. That was an attack, a challenge against the very ethos of society and of King Ahab. And it saddens me, perhaps not so much for all of us, I appreciate, but especially, you know, for people maybe like Graham and myself and Ian and others who've been involved in ministry, it saddens us that the church has so failed in our day and in our generation to be that prophetic word, to speak out, not, not always to be complaining about things and criticizing things, I don't mean that, but to speak out and to speak into the times in which we live. For instance, the whole situation to do with climate concern. Rightly so. We are concerned. But the church largely has been silent, first of all, by reminding people that this world in which we live will ultimately be consumed by fire. It is not forever. Nothing is forever. And this world is not forever. And secondly, to explain 
why things are. Why is creation groaning, waiting for its day of deliverance? It's because of human folly. It's because of sin. It's because we do not recognize that we are not the creator, that we are not in charge, but we are the stewards under the creator meant to look after creation. And then, yes, talk about practical things, which rightly we all need to think about and do. But the church largely has either been silent or simply emphasized about the recycling, taking our plastic bottles to the bin and doing all that kind of stuff, and has never, ever, rarely put the whole story in its context. We failed to be that voice of prophecy. But Elijah did his job and brought his word. And we need to pray that in these days, the church will be enabled and empowered to do that far more faithfully. He brought God's word. And secondly, moving on perhaps a bit more briefly, he also knew, of course, God's care. We read the story of how the Lord provided for him. Notice what it says. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kether ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kether ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. You see, my friends, Elijah was giving the big story. You know, God switched off the tap. And it's not going to come back on until he says so. And you better learn your lesson. Basically, that's what he was saying. And think about it. And of course, we'll see what happens over the next week or two as to the outworking of that. But you see, it's always easy for a preacher or a minister or end in that line of work to say things. It's always a challenge for all of us to actually prove them and know them in our own lives. And actually, this whole story that comes out to us and 1 Kings 17, is really, at least partly, to do with Elijah's own faith growth. And so, his own immediate needs are met. Miraculously so, at the brook in the Cather Ravine, and the ravens who bring him food. And again, the story of Jonah complaining, remember, and the Lord provides for him at the very end, and he moans and groans about what God's mercy on the city of Nineveh. And God provides for him a tree that covers and shelters him and provides him shelter, reminding Jonah that ultimately he, like everyone, is dependent upon the same God, the God of justice, the God of provision, the God of faithfulness, and the God of truth. And Elijah is learning that here. And when that supply runs out, God provides someone to help him. And it's not just, it's not just in a journey spiritually in his faith. It's also a physical journey. First of all, he goes over to the east of the Jordan. That's going a wee bit kind of, you know, that's a bit like you dear folks from this side of the city venturing over maybe to the West End. You know? That was special too when it was in the East End, wasn't it? That really was a big journey. Well, perhaps maybe that should be the land of Sidon. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the east of the Jordan was like going into Glasgow, you know, and then going out to the West End, really out into the, you know, no man's land, the strangers. I, I mentioned the other day, my aunt who lived in Edinburgh for years used to talk about coming through to the West, and the way she spoke, you thought it was the wild west she was coming through to. Well, Elijah's on a journey. Geographically, he's getting further and further away from the land of Israel, and he's moving now to the land of Sidon, really into enemy territory, out with of the covenanted land of Israel. First of all, he's out with a wee bit, but 
not too far. And then he really moves out. But you see, my friends, that's what God does for his people. He stretches us. We can all be quite narrow and set and we think, this is how things are to be. This is what is to happen. You know, if anything, COVID was one, it threw that to the winds. And particularly for those of us who find it hard to think out of the box, who love to follow the rules, who find safe with laws and regulations, one sense it was wonderful because it was all laid out until you actually began to look at them. And that's one of the reasons why I think all these parties took place in Downing Street because half the rules and regulations were told the folk in Downing Street didn't even believe them themselves. But we think, well, that's how we're going to be safe because we're in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And Elijah has to learn that the only right place, the only safe place, the only secure place is where God is with him. And so he goes and he moves on and he's provided for. And not only is he provided for, but he's also a blessing to that family. The miracle of the jar of flour and the jug, jug of oil not running dry. God's provision in that. He does immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. His ways might not be our ways. His thoughts might be not our thoughts. But he is a bountiful God. And the provision is there. And it's all opening up. And you can just imagine the nice evenings he would spend talking to this lady. And maybe to her family suggested there's more family than just the son who takes out. And reflecting on things. And actually perhaps a time of refreshment. I think Elijah probably had to really kind of stir himself up to go and speak to Ahab. You know? Because Ahab could easily go and, you know, and that would have been the end of the story. And so the whole thing was stressful for him. Certainly later on you can see that Elijah. Elijah wasn't immune to nerves and to the stress and strain of life. And God was providing and supporting and caring for him in that family. In that family that wasn't Jewish. The God who, yes, was going to bless Israel, the Jewish people. But why? So that there would be a blessing to the nations round about. And here already, this is beginning to work out. And it's a nice story. And you think, isn't that good? Until, of course, something happens. I was talking with somebody, in fact, a member of a congregation just the other day, and we were just talking about the whole situation in the world and with COVID and everything else. And he made a very valid point, well, a very valid point. He said, you know, he said, I think people sometimes think that death doesn't exist go in a wee rant about how I think that definitely underpinned, unfortunately, a lot of the ways we dealt with COVID. Sad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to people who try to do the right thing. As the Queen reminded us when she spoke at the beginning of the COP conference, I think it was the COP conference, wasn't it? Anyway, she spoke recently, one of the times that she appeared, she actually said, you know, we all, nothing is forever. We all have to die. And that's a reality, I think, in our society. See, even the way that they're all understandably concerned about this heat wave and special meetings of the government's COBRA committee and all the rest of it. And, well, fair enough, but how did we ever get through a war? How did we ever get through the 1930s and the Depression? Everything's got to be safe. Everything's got to be forever. But it's not. And 
the church has often failed to be honest about that. And this tragic story, and it is a tragic story, but this tragic story reminds us of that very real issue, if we need reminded, although I know many of us don't, that there's a frailty to life. And that in the calamities and stresses of the world, it's often the young and the innocent who suffer. The boy took ill. And there wasn't the medication. There wasn't the support. There wasn't the help to support him. The story ends positively. It points towards the story of Jesus and Jairus' daughter. Or the apostles in the book of Acts and the bringing back to life of those who die. But it's not just about that. Look at the very end when the woman speaks to Elijah. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You see, this story in the events is the same with the miracles of Jesus or the miracles in the book of Acts. The miracles in themselves were a real blessing to those who were healed or restored, got their sight or raised from the dead. Of course they were. But they were far more significant than just that, dare I say. These miracles are there. This miracle is here to confirm and to affirm that the God that stands at the heart of our faith is the God of truth. The God who has provided a way for us to know him. The God who brings life, not just here, but hereafter. The one who is the resurrection and the life. I saw that, and I've mentioned this before. I've seen that in many people within the life of the church. I saw it within my own dad. I still remember, I've told you this story before, when the consultant came to him and suggested cutting out more parts of his body. He was going to have more tubes coming out from him than you know. And he just looked at the doctor and said, you know, doctor, he says, I'm not afraid to die. He said, but I am concerned about the process of getting there. And so therefore, I'm not going to be left the walking dead for however long. And that's faith. To know that our times are in God's hands. That this is not all that there is. And how sad it is when as Christian people we live as if that is the case. We cling on to here and now rather than looking to the day when there will be a you heaven and a you earth and there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more soaring, no more sin. When we'll be with the Lord forever and life in all its fullness will come forth and the dead will be raised and those in Christ will join with the saints in glory to worship the Lamb who was slain for them. That's the big story. And unless we live in the light of that big story, then yes, the calamities and the pain and the sorrow of life will crush us, will break us, and will force us to conform to a materialistic view of life and of living. That lady, she found faith in the midst of the calamity. And that's what was missing from Israel. They had lost faith. And therefore they had lost their reason for being. 
And you know, my friends, I think many of us will have family and friends and they will say things and express concern about the way things are and everything else. Here is your chance. You may not be, I am not Elijah. After all, when Jesus appeared in the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses were the two that appeared with him to confirm that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I'm not Elijah, neither are you, but we can all bear witness to the truth even in the valley of the shadow. I was asked recently about someone who was going through a very, very, very difficult time. How were they? And I said, they're deeply mourning. But they're strong in faith. And that's the key to being a faithful witness to the truth that is in Jesus. And I pray that as we look at more of the story of Elijah and all that God did in and through this very frail man, we'll find our own faith and our own connection with the living God deepened 